You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is Andrew Kingsley, and we're right dab in the middle of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, of course, is a major prophet, meaning he's got a lengthier prophecy than the minor prophets. And uh, he lives in interesting times. He is uh, riding from the Kebar Canal and Babylonian captivity, and we've explained all the background on that. I think by now our listeners know what the background of this prophecy is, but there are a lot of symbols and signs and parables and illustrations, some of which are are pretty difficult to to get through, and that's why we are here. We're going to try to shed some light on it. We don't say we have all the answers. We're going to try to shed some light on these things, and we hope that you're enjoying uh, the conversation, and we hope that uh, you're learning a little bit along with us. We're learning too. It's one of the reasons we enjoy doing this is we find that you know we teach our classes and we'll bring our material in mm-hmm. and do it on a podcast. And through the conversation, Andrew and I, we talked about it off mic all the time that that we just learned so much definitely from doing this podcast, and and we love it, and we hope that sharing it with you is a good thing for you too. Um, so we are today going to be talking about parables, sort of. There's a couple of places in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel identifies, or the Lord identifies, Ezekiel's words as parables. And then there are other things we're going to talk about today in chapters 15, 16, part of chapter 24. Um, no, 24 is parable too, but um, mm-hmm. there are other illustrations that we're lumping in together with the parables, and they may not technically be parables, or God may not have told us, you know, I'm going to slap a label of parable on this, but they fit in and help us uh, kind of cover some more territory today and be efficient with how many podcasts we're putting this into. Right. Yeah, so we're going to try to cover a lot of ground, Um, and all of these are really just kind of stories or images that are given to the people to uh, compare what's going on in the story to their current situation. So in that sense of comparison, all these are definitely safely categorized under parables. Yes, and I mean, we know what these parables are going to to say. In other words, we know what they're going to illustrate. Right. The same thing that all the symbols and the visions have illustrated so far. There's a basic message here that runs through pretty much every chapter of Ezekiel. And so in some ways, the explanations get a little monotonous. Mm. But, you know, you have to remember that Ezekiel was speaking at a time where people didn't have recording devices or computers or stuff like that. They had to be repeatedly told a spiritual truth in a number of different forms so Mm. that in their captivity situation, they could know what God's truth was for them. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about learning through repetition. I had a professor in college who would put like the exact same question on a 200 word or 200 question exam, multiple choice exam. It'd be like the same question five or six times, but worded just a little bit different. Uh So like you learn, you know, 15 or 20 questions. And I mean, I don't know if all those three or four or five times you've got. And I asked my professor one time why he did that and said, like, you know, you know that this question's on here more than once. He said, yeah, I know, but I'm a big believer in learning through repetition. Hmm. So, and it, you know, it worked. Um, I don't think I've missed many of those um, going through school. So there's definitely something to be said about repetition. And Ezekiel's driving home the point that these people of Israel have been really useless for God, have betrayed God, and punishment is coming. That's the whole theme so far. So far. Uh, There's a lot more to be said about hope, though, the coming hope with Christ and the new life later on. But for now, let's look at four of these parable slash illustrations, I guess. Um, These four things. In chapter 15, this is short and sweet. It's only eight verses long. He's going to call Israel a useless vine. Verse 2, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to fuel 
for fire or to the fire for fuel. When the fire is consumed, both ends and the middle of it is charred. Is it useful for anything? But when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it be used for anything? Then it goes on to say this, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fuel for fire, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So basically God is saying a vine is useless and all you can use it for is to burn it. And once it's burned, it's not definitely not good for anything then. He says, this yeah. is pretty much what Israel's like for me. And They're this not, is probably given to people who saw parts of Jerusalem burning yeah. when they were taken captive and moved out of there. Right. I mean, we haven't gotten to, so far as I know, uh, we're not in the part of Israel's history where the Dru- uh, where the the uh, temple has been completely destroyed. Right. That's coming, but they have seen a lot of destruction already, which makes this a really fitting illustration of what's going on with Israel. And again, it's you know same territory we've been over before, mm-hmm. but he's trying to drive it into their minds that you have been punished. This didn't happen because Babylon was a better has a better military than Israel, although they did. But he's saying to them, this happened because I removed my protection from you as punishment for your your sins, your idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And they illustrate, or Ezekiel, inspired by God here, given the words of God, he's going to illustrate that idolatry and that betrayal very thoroughly in chapter 16. Um, So we're getting to our second. Yes parable slash illustration here. Yeah. The first one was short and sweet, a useless vine in chapter 15. That was the first one. Only eight verses long. Now we're getting into... Can I say something before you... Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, If there are any children in uh, your car as you are listening to this, uh, turn this off. Yeah, go listen uh, to it later. It's God's Word, and uh, we respect that. Uh, it's also very shocking what it's, we're getting into now in chapter 16. Yeah, it's a little PG-13, I would say, uh, to read. Chapter 23 or, is worse. Or beyond that. Yeah. yeah. Chapter 23 is definitely worse. I think you told me that's the chapter like you couldn't read until you were 13 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I'm a little... I should have looked that so up. So that was but 100% there was, PG-13. Yeah, like, yeah. That was the definition of PG-13. Yeah. But... This is, you know, it's got some language. Like you said, I think the best way to describe it is shocking. Actually, this is funny. This is what I have in my notes right here. Probably not appropriate reading with your kids before bedtime. Let's <laughs> see. <laughs> it's not what they want to hear before they go to bed. Yeah. Uh, but there's really four main ideas of what's going on here. Uh, you have Israel's birth as a nation, Israel's marriage with God, Israel's betrayal of God, and then Israel's punishment. That's chapter 17. In a nutshell. This oh. is you mean sixteen. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. And Chapter this is 16. in the context of Israel as God's bride. Yes. I think we failed to say that, but the illustration is a faithless bride mm-hmm. or wife to Yahweh the who is the husband in this scenario. Right. And it starts off where uh God comes by basically well let's let's just read the text. Starting in verse three of chapter 16. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of the things out of compassion for you, but you were cast out onto the open field for you are aboard on the day that you were born. So he paints this picture of Israel as an infant child being born out of idolatry. And you go back to the origins of the kingdom of Israel as it was under Saul and moving forward. They begged for a king. Uh, this goes back to Samuel. They begged for a king, begged for a king, and then God ultimately says to Samuel, um, Basically, don't be upset because the people have not rejected you. They have rejected me as king over them. So a lot of commentators speculate that that's what this birth, like air quotes, birth comes from. The origin, going back to verse 3, is interesting because I know I've always thought that the origin of the Israelites was Father Abraham. Right. And 
He's saying Amorites, Hittites, and I bet if we dug around, we'd find Amorites and Hittites in Abraham's ancestry. Or maybe we wouldn't, yeah. but it, yeah, it seems so. to have been there. So I think this is written to a group of people that excuse themselves all the time based on their lineage. Mm-hmm. We can, we're can we good because we're Abraham's children. And this is kind of a, a smack in the face saying, you know, you're not... You're not a purebred Israelite. Yeah. Before Abraham, you have ancestors back there too. You never talk about them, but they are idol worshippers, and they're they were yeah. the Amorites and the Hittites. Yeah, right. So uh, you come from Abraham's father. Even yeah, was he had idols, right? Idols. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so there are a lot of ancestors that came from Midianite uh, lineage, or you know, some of the other Canaanites. But he's basically saying, don't you can't take pride in your lineage. Because if we go back far enough, we're going to find some some people who are not Abraham's people. Right. Um, and he says this, uh, as for your birth, when you were born, basically you didn't get any medical attention. You were just abandoned at birth. And verse 6, the Lord says, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. So he comes by basically, you go down to verse 9. I bathed you with water, washed off the blood from you, and anointed you with oil. Uh, takes this child in, takes the nation in, decides he is going to be the the power behind this nation, is the illustration that we're getting here. Uh, but something happens here in verse 8. So we'll back up to verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Down to verse 10. We've already read verse 9. To verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather, wrapped you in fine linen, and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Now verse 14 is particular, particularly of note here. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So God enters into this covenant with Israel, makes it perfect, basically. He gives Israel this amazing adornment of glory and honor and beauty, and everybody else takes notice. She is made a queen, a beautiful and perfect queen, because of the splendor God gave to her. Now, in verses 15 to 34 is where things go south. Verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty, and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. And he continues on and on about how bad the betrayal of this wife is against him. And you can even read, uh, I think a great example of this in one person is Solomon, where God gave Solomon all these great blessings. He gave him all the wealth he could imagine, all of the power he could imagine. You know, Solomon's probably as close as you could get to being king of the world, you know, at any one point. Very powerful, very rich, can have whatever he wants. And God also even gives him wisdom. Makes him very smart, very insightful, very wise man. And you see what Solomon did with a lot of those gifts that God gave to him. In chapter 11, he turns his heart away from God because of his wives. Uh, He's turning to idols. He's doing all these things that the faithless wife is mentioned of doing here. Here are a few things he accuses them of. Uh, Leaving him for false gods. Murdering his children. Mm leaving him for kings and for armies. And when we get to the end here, verse 30, he has this phrase that I think is very powerful. He says, How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, 
because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. At the end of verse 31, you were not, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Verse 33, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all of your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. And then he says she's different because instead of making people pay her for that, she pays people to allow her to do that. Wow. So he's saying not only have you taken the glory I gave you and given it freely to everyone else, breaking our covenant and betraying the good that I have done for you. On top of that, you've taken the beauty and the wealth that I have given to you and you have given it, you've used it to pay people to allow you to betray me even further. Mm. So this is an incredible, you know, we'll talk more about it in the second section. I'm having a hard time not talking about it now. Yeah. I think this really resonates with us because of, you know, the value that we place on marriage and the covenant between a man and a woman. But just imagine a man who, you know, I don't know, rescues somebody, or you can flip it around say a woman who rescues a man from some mm-hmm. terrible situation. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know where to begin to make this illustration as powerful or half as powerful as this, but basically, you know, brings them out from something awful terrible and they are responsible for saving that person's life not only do they save them but they put them in this awesome position and give them all these great gifts and blessings give them a bunch of money even and then the spouse takes the money to pay people to cheat on their spouse with yeah i mean it's just the it's the worst kind of betrayal yeah but it's suffered again and again by god right and what's interesting when you get into the gospel you have one of Jesus' best friends turn on him for money, and at the end, he's throwing the money back at people trying to remove the deed. So uh, betrayal is something that runs all the way through, and and this may be a type of, of Christ, uh, not an official one, but you look at this and how things played out here, that's exactly how it would play out in Jesus's story, his sacrifice. Yeah, that's Um, exactly right. Um, So that covers the third part of this chapter. The last part is the punishment that God's going to bring on them for betraying him so badly. Verse 38, he says, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. So there are two things that he's telling them. Right. Right. He's telling them there are two things they're guilty of, adultery and murder. That refers back to where he says, you've murdered my children. This is uh, verse yeah, 21. Human and, sacrifices, yeah. Right, verse 21 and 20, 20 and 21, sorry. Mm-hmm. You took my children that I gave you. There's a lot in there about, you know, kids and what they are and how they're a blessing from God. But that little phrase, you took my children that I gave you and murdered them in honor of another. So there's a lot of betrayal just... just crammed into that statement. Mm-hmm. You know, you took the kids I gave you and you murdered them for the benefit of someone else. Um, so that's how they're going to be judged, adulterers and murderers. Then in verse 40, 44 to the end of the chapter, he compares them to um, Sodom. Uh, he says that your sister Sodom in verse 48 and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. And he basically says Sodom's problem was this in verse 49. She had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease and she did not aid the poor and the needy. That was her problem. And he said, you know, she was wrong and so I removed her, but your sins are even worse. Your disgrace is much worse than the disgrace of Sodom. So that's a, I mean, a very short summary. I know it took us a little bit of time, but that's a short summary of maybe the longest chapter in this book. I mean, we're looking at sixty-three verses. Yeah, Um, but some of those you were glad not to read. You you did a good job. Yeah. Well, that gives us the the gist of the chapter. You know, it's really what we need to know. Yeah. So so far, parable one is the useless vine. 
the burnt vine. God can't use it for anything. Uh, parable number two is the faithless bride that talks about Israel's birth as a nation, its marriage covenant with God, its betrayal of God, and then finally its punishment. And now the third one that we're going to see is a parable of two eagles and a vine, starting in chapter 17 and verse 1. Uh, and we'll go ahead and read some of this. We have an idea of what's going on. Verse 3, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage and of many feathers, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows. Then there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it had planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine." Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up from its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it has sprouted? We'll talk about what that means hmm. in the second section. But strange story. Yeah, that's the parable. One eagle grabs a twig from the top of a tree and plants it. And it says the twig turns toward that eagle and grows toward him. And toward it says okay. towards yeah. that first eagle. Yeah. Then another eagle comes in and then the vine turns and starts growing towards the other eagle. And I but think, the first eagle was in fertile soil. Right. And the other eagle was in the air, right? The or other it appears eagle. That way. He had great wings. He's in the. He's not in good soil, right? Well, uh, it's the it same had been vine. Planted on good soil. Yeah, it's the same vine. So verse eight, it had been planted on good soil by abundant water, so that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. So basically, the idea is the first eagle is going to be mad and come back and take the twig up for betraying it. Oh, we're not looking at two eagle. eagles. Yeah, we are. So the first, uh, okay, you're there's saying, not yeah. two vines. After the second eagle, right, I get yeah. that. Just the picture in my mind was of this plant, this vine, and we're over 22 minutes, so I probably don't need to be interrupting, but uh, you got the one eagle, he plants it in a good place, and then the other mm -hmm. eagle comes along, and its roots reach for it, which means they're not in the fertile soil anymore. Yeah. And so they're, yeah, they're basically self-destructing. And, you know, it's no problem for God to pull it up yeah. wherever it is. I mean, it's not, it's technically, mm -hmm. physically uh, hard to, it, it's not even, a, I, I don't want to say common sense, I forget the word I'm looking for, but it, you know, it's a vision, it's a parable. It doesn't have yeah. to work here on earth yeah. the way this thing works. The main idea is they went after the wrong eagle. Yeah. So the first eagle right. has the right to pull it up. Yeah, and the, destroy it. The idea is that the vine uh, bends its branches towards the other eagle mm -hmm. when it should have been staying true to the first one, which I know sounds a little, you know, I, I don't guess that's a very common metaphor. Yeah. But it's a parable. We'll talk about what it means in the next section. So let's get to the last one. Uh, the last one is this parable of a boiling pot. Now, this comes to... This word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in verse 2 of chapter 24 on the very day that Nebuchadnezzar is attacking Babylon. Okay. So we don't know if this is necessarily the first day. You mean Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Laying siege. Right. I'm sitting here reading Babylon on it. The yeah. king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Utter a parable and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on. Pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, seethe also 
its bones in it. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. Um, but the imagery here is definitely of basically Jerusalem is the pot and the people are the meat in the pot boiling. Mm. Uh, and, and he says as much down yeah. on in the rest of Verse this six, section. Verse 6, woe to the, the bloody city, yeah. the pot whose corrosion is in it. Yeah. So the city, like you said, is the is the pot. Yeah, the city's the pot, and then the pieces of meat, the good pieces, the thigh, the shoulder, the choice bones, all those, that's the people of the city. Uh, How well, striking is it that the holy city becomes the bloody city? Yeah. I mean, Ezekiel's the only place where you'll read language like that. Um, there may be other examples that are just as powerful and strong and striking, but I don't think... Uh, and somebody's going to find it after I say this, but I don't think I've ever seen Jerusalem referred to as the bloody city outside of yeah. this. And, yeah. But it was, sadly, right. at this point. And he explains why in the rest of this section of the chapter. The second section of this chapter, uh, 15 and following, is where Ezekiel's wife dies. So that is familiar to us already in our study of Ezekiel. But So that's... Trying to be as short as we can. I know we went a little longer than planned, but we'll come back after a quick break and apply or think about some things. Back. Our favorite part of the podcast is upon us, although we probably need to abbreviate it a little to catch up for. Very much. So. We meandered a little bit. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. We we chit chatted a little bit. But well, we also had two chap three chapters ish, right? Uh, by my count, we Here. did four. Oh, or we had three four. and a half. See, that's why I didn't. Take this one. is exciting conversation. Math teacher, we're meandering again. Uh, yes, so um, chapter fifteen. Let's just go through each parable, if you want to call it that and uh, make notes of anything that we've missed in the initial reading. So in chapter 15, I think this is pretty self-explanatory. This is the chapter on the on the useless vine, uh, and I, I just found that one very interesting and creative, a really yeah. creative illustration about how different kinds of wood are, have value in different ways, and right. the vine is an example of a piece of wood that's just pretty much useless. You can't build a bookcase out of it. You can't. um, He says you can use it for fire, for fuel, but it's not even very good fuel because evidently this happened a lot. People cleaning their fireplaces out noticed that the vines burn on both ends, but the middle is just charred, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can't take it. He gives you can't make a strong peg out of it. It's just not very useful. It's not a tree. It's not a plant. It's, you know, somewhere in between that. Yeah. And I, I just found that really interesting because uh, he's saying to Israel, you are this useless vine. Yeah. Um, so it reminds me of a sermon James Watkins used to preach all the time. What kind of wood are you? Or what kind of tree are you? And oh, he would yeah, go through I've the Bible. Yeah. You know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, one about potatoes? No, that was another guy who did the potatoes. Oh, okay. Uh, I can't see James Watkins as a commentator. Tell us about taters, not potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Spec- some are spectators, kind of commentators. Yeah, sweet taters. Some are deep fried, <laughs> French fried potato taters. Yep. Okay, uh, the wheels have just come that. off. Yeah. So meandering. As immature as we're being right now, it's probably not good for handling chapter sixteen. But um, correct. I wanted to note something, chapter 16. This is the chapter where Israel is pictured as a faithless bride. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that heading is wrong. Well, I guess it's right, but when you start reading it, the language is a lot more shocking. And it's not saying unfaithful. It's saying you're a, you're a whore, you're a prostitute, wow. harlot. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is the word that most of us would use to describe Israel, and the word that is used in a lot of prophecies and historical books about uh, Israel's unfaithfulness is adultery. There is a Hebrew word for adultery that Ezekiel seems to purposely be uh, purposely avoid, and instead he's using this word that is specific to female prostitutes. Hmm. And there may or may not be a couple of good explanations for that. 
Um, yeah. You kind of tore down my thoughts on it, though. I thought that it was all wrapped up in the gifts that Israel was receiving, which is kind of like paying for prostitution. Yeah. Uh, unlike being in a marriage where, you know, you're to be faithful to each other mm-hmm. uh, and you cheat on the other person, um, not for monetary gain, but, you know, for love or whatever. Yeah, and so uh, in this case, that's not what was going on. They entered into alliances with idolatrous nations. They started picking up on the uh, religious things they were doing, human sacrifice, and things like that. Right. And so they were receiving these things. But then you took me to this this um, wow. There's just a big bang outside, and yeah. the storm's coming up, and uh, I'm having trouble concentrating. It sounds like something hit our bus. But it's, uh, yeah, it does sound like that. Um, So verse 33 of chapter 16, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers. So you pointed this out before. So maybe we don't know exactly why he chose the language of prostitution over adultery. Maybe it doesn't matter. But what they're they're behaving more like a prostitute than somebody who had a weakness and committed adultery and tried to correct it, you know. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that that language is used. I'm not sure I understand why that choice was made exactly. Do you think it would have been more, I don't know, if insulting is the right word, would it have been, yeah, I guess would it have been more degrading for Israel to be referred to as a prostitute than an adulterous wife? Yeah, I think so people? because adultery... Okay, adultery is bad. We all know that. But yeah, yeah. a lot of times it happens due to weakness, just moral weakness. Um, Prostitution is like a conscious decision. Yeah, it's a career. Of this is, yeah, that's the it's best way It's a totally to different path. Because I, I, I've known people to have committed adultery, and they, you know, they need to understand better what love means. But they yeah. say, you know, I still love my spouse. I had a moment of weakness or a moment of indiscretion, whatever. I'm not trying to downplay adultery. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's different from prostitution. The connotation of prostitution is I'm not ashamed. Yeah. I you know, I do this out in the open. And uh the only problem was I was thinking they were doing it in exchange for gifts. Then we got this, you know, in here where Ezekiel saying, you know, you are paying other people to be a prostitute. Yeah, uh, that's really bad behavior, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, there's so much. There's a lot of application wrapped up in that chapter. Yes, I'm going to save my comments on that one for application. Yeah, I got a lot of ap- applications too. So let's cool. let's move on down to verse uh, to chapter 17, where we have the two eagles in a vine, and we, you know, I I kind of expressed my thoughts on that one already about the first eagle and the second eagle. This is no cliche. I mean, this is something really interesting and new in terms of illustrating what had happened. And what I see, I I know I'm repeating myself, but just to put it out there and see if you have any more responses to it, what I see is God represented by the first eagle that cares for this vine and makes sure that it's in good soil, Mm because it's very important. And here comes another eagle. He didn't do the work of planting the vine. Yeah. And this vine, again, he's not letting Israel off the hook. He's not saying, you were deceived or, you know, you should have known better. He, they are the ones that actively wrap their roots and their branches around the second eagle. Right. Who does not care if they're in good soil or not. And the Lord is basically saying, this pulling this plant up is going to be really easy. Uh, yeah. Do you think I'm going to have any trouble at all uprooting Jerusalem, the temple, your lives, your children's lives, etc. Uh, they are to be punished by being planted in the wrong garden. I guess you could look at it that way. Right. He's Well, he explains it, and it, he explains it very similarly to what you just said. Starting in verse 12, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took her king and her princes, and brought them to Babylon. So that twig at the top, Represents the whole nation, yes, but specifically it represents the king, who's Zedekiah at this time. So okay. Babylon sets him up as uh-huh. king. Remember, he took Jehoiakim or Chin, I had to go back, one of those yeah. two, off the throne and put Zedekiah on the throne. Um, it says, so, verse 13, he took one of the royal offspring, 
made a covenant with him, putting him under oath that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up in his kingdom or keep his covenant that it might stand. So that's your low spreading vine with branches. Um, he tells the kingdom it can grow, but it's got to stay humble. It's got to stay under submission to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Verse 15, here's the other eagle. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? Then he goes on to say that basically the king is going to be, he's going to die in Babylon for what he has done. Let's skip down to verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. He might recognize some of this, uh, that tender branch, as referring to Jesus mm-hmm. um, from other places. Isaiah but, and Jeremiah, I believe. Right. You know, use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm looking All the contemporary my, prophets with, with Ezekiel. Um, Daniel spoke a lot of uh, the Messiah in this way. Right. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6 is the reference uh, for that messianic prophecy. Uh, so he's going to he's going to, to bring this young, tender twig, plant it on a high mountain, uh, and it's going to produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it will dwell every kind of bird in its shade. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. So there's the remnant, right? Right. Some will return from captivity to rebuild the city, but only the humble, only those yeah. who have accepted their sin and have confessed it, uh, the righteous remnant. Yeah, and it's that idea of in the future planting the, uh, you know, planting the seeds i guess for the kingdom right through christ because you have a messianic prophecy here of the young tender twig no coincidence that that same language is used here that you see in jeremiah and as you pointed out isaiah as well uh that's all i have to say about the eagles and the vine that you're gonna do a forced gump there that's all i've got to say about that (laughs) no Okay, uh, chapter 24, Siege of Jerusalem, described in terms of a pot. Um, Yeah, we left out. Like, you know, what what you would cook things in. That's the kind of pot we're talking about here. Yeah. And, um, you know, it looks like they're making some stew here. Yes. Um, Probably not the kind of stew you'd be interested in eating. (laughs) Uh, Let's just go ahead and read the explanation for this. Um, Starting in verse 6, we mentioned this earlier. Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground or cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals, that it may become hot, and its copper may burn, that its uncleanliness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. So, Basically, he's telling the people, you know, that it's not going to be a good few days for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not only is everything in the pot going to be burned up, but he's saying just go ahead and let the pot burn for a while, mm-hmm. too, so everything can just melt melt away. Yeah. I find the, the imagery of the blood to be interesting. You know, the, the obvious meaning is all those children that they had killed in human sacrifice— that we talked about in chapter 16, I think. Um, but also, you know, there was a certain way to handle blood in animal sacrifices. And um, some have even looked back to this imagery of salt, the covenant of salt that you read about sometimes, as uh, being a figure for removing the blood. Salt may pull more blood out of the sacrifices. They weren't to consume blood. That was something that was done in idolatry. 
And then also you have this interesting statement that you hear about with Noah in Genesis 9, but it's reinforced in Leviticus 17, 11, where the life is in the blood. And so blood stood for life and death, and death was ritually impure to the yeah. Israelite mind because of the old law, you know, codified that, that, you know, you touch a, touch a dead corpse, you're unclean for so many days, uh, you consume blood, it's an abomination to do that. Yeah. Uh, there, there's much more going on than this, but I think a part of this, especially when it describes the bare rock, you know, it wasn't disposed of properly. They were to put blood on the horns of the altar for burnt sacrifice, to pour the rest of it out next to the altar, on the side of the altar. Uh, that blood was to be disposed of in a particular way, and they're putting it on a rock so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't drain into the soil. They want to make sure that it stays out in the open, making people unclean. I think that has to be in there as well as the bloodshed, the murders yeah. that they'd committed. Um, you think I'm off, off no, base on that? No, they're not even ashamed of what they've done. So it's just yeah. out on the bare rock, not even worried about trying to cover up what they've done. You know, they're doing it and they don't really care. Uh, just right. like... Like I mean, the prostitute. Yep. You know, Just like it. Advertising and being out in the open with everything. Uh, anything else you want to say before we take another break? Um, that's all I had to say about. Okay, that. I'm. I want to save some time. There's some great applications, believe it or not, yeah. that can be made out of here, and we both have several, I'm sure. So I'm going to save the rest of our time for that. Okay, so we're going to take just a few minutes to apply what we've read here. We're going to start with the useless vine from chapter 15. I think it's worth noting the fact that Israel was not created as a useless vine. Israel had a point. It had a purpose. They were supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to lead people to God. We have the same purpose today. Take a look at Ephesians 2. We are designed by God for good works. That's what we are made for. We have a goal. We have a purpose. We have a function, a utility, whatever you want to call it. We serve a purpose for God. We have a God-given mission. Now, when we fail to do that, we all wind up in the same boat as this useless vine. When we, uh, I guess a good illustration is from Matthew 5 where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, oh, yeah, yeah. it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You consider also the trees that Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mm -hmm. So we're all trees. We're all salt. Some of us have lost our taste. Some of us bear diseased fruit. And the ones that do, they're not useful. Yeah, uh, They're like that useless vine. So I think it's interesting, or at least worth noting, that it's not like we're just useless creations and you know God just does whatever he wants because we're not worth anything anyway. We have a real purpose, yeah. a real goal, something God uses us for. And if we don't, if we don't live up to that, or at least you know try our very best to live up to that, yeah, um, that's good. Um, let's go to chapter sixteen. Sounds I've got good. a few things to point out from here. Uh, let's start in verse six, where you notice uh, this narrative of this, you know, baby girl being born and not being taken care of. No, I pitied you. But uh, verse six, the Lord says, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I'm sure some scholar has suggested that that repetition was accidental and that it's some scribal error, but I, I don't believe so. I think that this bears a lot of similarities to chapter 37, which I very much look forward to talking about in the future. Um, but in that chapter and here, you have this theme of the power of God's Word. And this mm -hmm. is the God, the Creator, who created the world in six days by speaking it into existence. And here you see the Word doing the heavy lifting here with this this child bride, and over in chapter 37, you'll see the word doing the heavy lifting of making bones live, 
And so I don't think that has changed at all. In our day and time, the Word of God in the 66 books of the Bible is extremely powerful. Yeah, uh, We just need to preach it and to live by it to see the results. Yeah. Uh, it always Isaiah said this in Isaiah 55, it, God's Word always accomplishes the purposes for which it was written or for, mm-hmm. for which it was spoken. So uh, yeah. that's a good one, I think. Another um, one kind of on the coattails of that would be, you know, I see a little bit of our situation and our salvation here. I know mm-hmm. that's not what this is written about, but... You know, I see a little bit of God's grace towards us in the grace that he shows to Israel. Yeah. You know, as this baby is walling around with no help. Nobody cared but God. Right. Yeah. And I think what you bring up about the word being the thing to save this child. And then I think of John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Word is still, you know, in that context of John 1, still the same thing that saves us to being uh, Jesus, you know, being uh, that definition from John 1. He is the embodiment of the Word. Right, that's the word I was looking for, yeah. uh, the embodiment of that Word. And, you know, we, we really don't have time on this podcast, but, you know, just what, I think the magnitude of what this, you know, in the story, what God did for this child is incredible and it's amazing and you know the idea is certainly that that sort of love would have compelled this young woman to desire nothing else in her life but to make you know that man happy mm-hmm. that did yeah. this for her which uh, it just I makes just see so much of the gospel in that yeah you know definitely definitely uh well that leads us to the second thing i wanted to point out from chapter 16 verse 14 where uh, we read that God is saying to the bride, "You, your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect, the beauty is, through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. So she didn't earn that splendor or yeah. beauty. It was bestowed on her. It was graced on her. And this is just another example of grace in the Old Testament. As we go through these books in the Old Testament, we're constantly finding examples of grace, despite the fact that people are always saying there's a different God of the Old Testament than what we mm-hmm. see in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. Yeah. That no, the God of the New Testament is here doing all this for this for this woman, not because she had earned anything or she was valued by anybody or worth anything, mm-hmm. but because he just get, showed grace on her. He bestowed yeah. it on her through no credit to her. Yeah, it reminds me of Ephesians 2 and over um, at the Christian Academy here in town I was doing chapel and the question for the day was are we saved by faith or are we saved by faith through works? Mm-hmm. And I got to answer the question. I went to Ephesians 2 and said, no, that's a good question. We're not saved by either one of those things. Mm. You know, we're not saved. Yeah. Well, what Paul says here in Ephesians, we're saved by the same thing that saved this you know, the illustration here, yeah. this baby, mm-hmm. uh, just the grace of God. Uh, he says this in verse 8. Paul says this in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I just, I don't, there's a lot we could talk about yeah. there for a long oh, yeah. time. But the well, grace is We get is opportunity, striking. thankfully, to talk about grace all the time because... Yeah. Every book of the Bible has it in it. Right. And it's fun to, it's it's more than fun. It's also, it's, I'm sorry, uh, great. go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's great to be able to dwell on grace in all these different ways. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this gives us a whole new perspective on it. And I in, love in the how book of Ezekiel. studying Ezekiel and this like doom and gloom chapter on how awful and treacherous Israel was, we still see, you know, the powerful... Like you said, the the same God of the New Testament, you know, we sh- we're seeing the gospel all in here, and this isn't yeah. written to be, you know, Ezekiel's not describing the gospel here, but, but we see actions of the same God, right here. So we see His nature validated. It's the same actions we, yeah. we have in our salvation, the salvation that was given to them that they ultimately rejected. Well, it's the only way anybody's going to be saved, right? 
Any right. any story of salvation has to come down to the grace of God. Yeah, that's a good point. No man or woman has ever saved himself. That That's just yeah. never happened. That's a really good point. Let's go to another interesting one to me. Um, of course, very tragic. And I don't know if all of our listeners were aware of the fact that uh, the Canaanites or the idolatrous nations surrounding Israel eventually influenced Israel, namely Judah. Well, no, the northern kingdom as well in Israel uh, influenced them to conduct human sacrifices, which is terrible. And you see God right. sick over this. You slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. Um, you know, and it just shows... Another theme that you see in Jesus that you didn't expect to see in the book of Ezekiel, God cares for even the smallest, defenseless people, mm-hmm. little children. Um, he noticed that, and some people may have thought that he didn't, but God noticed that, and he was bringing them on trial for murder. You know, yeah. these weren't just you know easy sacrifices to make. These, these were God's children. He claimed them. He... He uh, is going to stick up for them even when their parents won't stick up for them. Yeah, he calls them my children several times. Yeah. Verse 21, you slaughtered my children. And by that you know, token, parents are stewards of God's children. Right. I mean, we call them our children, but he gave them to us for us to raise them in the Lord, not to burn them up in human sacrifices right. or whatever <laughs> abuse you see in the modern day as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jesus in Matthew 18 and several other places was teaching and brought a child to him. One time, this wasn't in Matthew 18, but on another occasion, the disciples were shooing them away uh, because mm-hmm. maybe for some of the same reasons that people sometimes shoo children away in church, they were being loud and disruptive and, and um, yeah. you know, they thought maybe he w- they were bothering Jesus. And Jesus used that as an opportunity to say, unless you're converted and become like little children, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And later in chapter 18, verse 10 of Matthew, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Some of you will take that as the guardian angel verse of the Bible. It's not. He's saying, look, these little children have friends in high places. The angels care about them. I care about them. The Father cares about them. So if yeah. you abuse a child or neglect a child or refuse to let the child have any access to Christ, you're going to be held accountable for that in a big way because God yeah. notices that. Uh, that grieves God. Um, yeah. Man, we're running short on time. I want to throw this next one in. All right. Um, I, he mentioned Sodom in chapter 16, verse 46, and it was by comparison, you're a lot worse than, than Sodom. Uh, your elder yeah. sister is Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. God had to destroy them through the Assyrians in similar ways that we see Judah facing destruction here. But then he goes on and he says, And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways, uh, blah, blah, blah. He goes down to verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, and he lists it. They were haughty and did an abomination. I removed them. And he goes on to say he removed Samaria. And he makes this point, um, you know, you're worse than Sodom. And he repeats it several times, which is what Jesus was telling some of the villages he visited in his three-year ministry. For instance, you can look in Matthew 11, where he says, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And Capernaum, he says, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, Sodom is the city that everybody thinks of uh, as being like the example of the worst city. So bad, God had to destroy it during the days of Abraham. I'm not going to get into the specifics of their sin. That's something a lot of people like to talk about. But I want to talk about the analogy to the people of Israel in Ezekiel and the people of mm-hmm. Capernaum and basically the villages visited by Jesus that rejected him. Yeah. You know, he's saying Sodom, basically the idea is this. Sodom did not have the law. Sodom did not have a prophet. Sodom uh, had Lot and his family. And that was some good influence for sure, but it wasn't much compared to how many people in Sodom had turned to wickedness. Yeah. 
they were destroyed, but they had fewer chances to repent than cities like Chorazin, Bethsaida, Sodom, Jerusalem, and, dare I say, America, and any other place yeah. in the 21st century today. Uh, you know, it does matter to God how much of a chance you have had. Uh, often, Jesus would say, to whom much has been given, much is expected. And that ought to be a sobering thought to Christians Definitely. today. And people, just people in general who are living in the time where the gospel has been preached mm-hmm. and who hear it and reject it over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a pecking order here. And because of the opportunities we have been given, uh, more is expected out of us than, say, even Sodom. Mm-hmm. So that's a powerful thing. There are a lot of connections here between the chapters we're covering and, and Jesus and his teachings. And Didn't you have one more yes. that was like that? Well, all the way at the end, um, after the parable of the pot. Right. So this is my last one for the, uh, the section today. You know, he goes through and he, you know, lays on the, the guilt on the city of Jerusalem for everything they've done. Then you get down here, and all this judgment, verse 13, on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanliness, or you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. And I was reading through that. As I was reading through that, what really stuck out to me was that God says, I would have cleansed you. Yeah. You know, and basically this punishment is coming to you because I would have cleansed you time and time again. You can read in Jeremiah 2 that basically God is begging his repeat, His people to repent, saying if they if they repent, then he'll bring them back. And all they have to do is repent, and they can dodge all this coming judgment. And he says, they, but you have rejected me time without number or something like yeah. that. You know, numerous times. Not This wasn't their first shot. Right. Right. Yeah, and I think it's just incredible to notice. We've already talked about the grace of God. But again, you have this same God who's desiring to give grace in the Old Testament that you have in the New Testament. We've already mentioned Ezekiel 18, 30 to 32, where God says, Why will you die, Israel? I have no desire that anyone should die, basically. And I'm paraphrasing. But he says, I don't want anyone to die. And we know from the New Testament, this is 2 Timothy, where he says, Second uh, Peter. Second Peter. God desires all Three, men nine. to come to a knowledge of the truth. Oh uh, well, no. Is that, okay, uh, is that, that is yeah, no Timothy. You're right. Yeah, Second Timothy. Well, uh, I was thinking you were talking about Second Peter three nine. Uh, the Lord is not slow concerning yeah, His promises, some kind of slowness, long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Yeah. So there's another one. But yeah, you're right in Second Timothy two. Three and four. Yeah. He wants, he still wants these people to be healed. He is willing to heal them until it gets to this point of, look, you know, I'm t- I've, I've told you again and again and again, but I can't let this go go on forever unpunished. Yeah. And so if you're not going to get right, then it's going to have to be punished. And it reminds me of. It's First Timothy. I'm sorry. First Timothy. Okay. Yeah. I never can remember. If that's I, I know. I know. Timothy. I hate to interrupt the I flow. know the quote. I can't remember. One Timothy or two Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. That's a joke we won't describe. Uh, Matthew 8, though, is where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. and countless other places in the New Testament where Jesus displays the same attitude, and it's spelled out very plainly. There is a leper that comes to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 8 in Matthew. Leper comes to him, kneels before him, and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And there are other places where uh, sick people or people who are afflicted say to Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me, basically. And then here's Jesus' words back to him. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I will be clean. Mm-hmm. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So you see that willingness still, yeah. you know, it's exemplified in the life of Christ where he is willing to heal everyone. Yeah. Um I mean, this is a glass half full. You could look at Ezekiel and look at you know, be very pessimistic about what you see. Mm-hmm. But knowing the gospel, we ought to see that this is a glass half full situation. Yes, right. they're being destroyed, but he's saving a remnant. And time and time again, he's constantly trying 
to bring them into his presence through repentance and sacrifice. Mm. And they just, they just wouldn't do it. And yeah. uh, I don't think our culture is that different, even the church. Yeah. You know, I think we've, we can learn a lot from Ezekiel. Unfortunately, mm. our time is up, and uh, we appreciate your patience with us as we go through this lengthy book. We try to condense it as much as we can. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of good stuff in there that we need to continue right. to study. So uh, we want to thank you all for tuning in, and we encourage feedback all the time through all the different ways that you can do it. I'm not going to go over them on this podcast, but you can listen to every other one, and we list all the ways that you can contact us. We just ask you to tune in next week whenever we continue our discussion of Ezekiel. And uh, until then, goodbye. <laughs> Stay awesome.